Ephesians 3, starting at verse 1. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now, under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is for your glory. Last week, we saw the apostle argue that the Lord Jesus has reconciled all believers to God and in the process of reconciling them to God he has reconciled them to one another he described the Gentiles as those who were far off and the Jews as those who were nigh or who were close but he said in chapter 2 verse 17 that the Lord Jesus proclaimed peace to you who were far off and to them that were close this is the ministry that the Apostle Paul received from the Lord to call Gentiles. And most of the church at Ephesus were Gentiles. Paul's ministry was to call them to saving faith in Christ. And yet as he did that, we know that the Apostle Paul would go into the Jewish synagogues first because they were also called to faith in Jesus. And he went there because the revelation had been made known to them in the Old Testament and it foretold that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all kinds of people. So now, at the time of this writing, as he writes this letter, the Apostle Paul is imprisoned for that work. He says in verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says in chapter 4, verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. You can look over at chapter 6, verse 20, where he says, For the gospel's sake I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I might speak boldly as I ought to speak. Literally, he says, I am an ambassador for Christ, but I am in chains. So Paul is imprisoned as he writes this letter to Ephesus. Yet as he does this, he does not see himself 
restrained by prison guards. He views himself as being exactly where the Lord Jesus wants him to be. He's imprisoned with divine purpose. And so in verse 1, he says it is for you Gentiles. Or at the end of our text, in verse 13, he says, my tribulations are for your glory. That is the sort of thinking that surrounds this text, verses 1 through 13. At either end of it, he's speaking of himself and his imprisonment and his tribulation, and it's for a purpose. And so that when the church at Ephesus sees this, he doesn't want them to, he says in verse 13, faint because of those tribulations. I might help you to see that in this text. You know, verses 1 through 13 is sort of this parenthetical thought as he dictates the letter it seems evident to me that he intends to express here's here's my purpose in praying for you here's what I want for you as a church as I come to the Lord and pray for you and you see how he starts in verse one he says for this cause right he's saying right because of this here's what I do and yet for 13 verses he digresses a little bit. You can see he immediately picks that up again right after the text in verse 14. He, he says again, for this cause, right? He's, he's getting back to what it was that he's saying. For this cause, I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't know if it helps you to sort of see the, the structure. It, I, I hope so. At least it helps me But having just explained in this letter the unity of the assembly, right? That all those who have been reconciled to God have been reconciled to one another and and brought into the assembly of the Lord Jesus. Paul is about to, in verse 14, start praying for that assembly, right? He wants them to be empowered by God. He wants them to see themselves for what they are. But before he gets there, he inserts this sort of, parenthetical thought that is concentrated around two main ideas. The two main ideas in the text this morning are the mystery and the ministry. And while those two thoughts are intertwined with each other, we can essentially see it break down in two parts. The mystery in verses 2 through 6 and the ministry in verses 7 through 12. And so that's how we're going to look at it. The mystery First. Now, when we use this term mystery, or at least as, as Paul uses the term mystery, it's important that we have an accurate idea of what he intends. When he uses this word mystery, which he does almost 20 times in the many letters that he writes, it isn't exactly what we think of as a mystery, right? I always think of when I was a kid, there was that board game clue where you solve a murder mystery. This isn't that. That's not the kind of mystery that Paul intends. The Bible uses this word to describe a truth that was undisclosed or unclear in the Old Testament, but now the full truth of it has been revealed through the gospel. There are many things that God has not revealed to us in all their detail. Even Jesus used this word to explain why he spoke to the crowd in parables so that some truths were to be left undisclosed so that they wouldn't understand. He told the disciples, it's given to you 
to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but to them it is not given. We know that's what Paul means too because he defines what he means right here in the context of the passage. The mystery, if you look at verse 5, he says that in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So as Paul's talking about a mystery, he's talking about something that was formerly unclear but now has been fully revealed. It's not a mystery anymore the way we think of it. That's not the first time that Paul uses that word in this letter. You can look back at chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where he says, having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. So the mystery, as Paul puts it forward in this letter, is something with universal and eternal proportions. It begins with God's elective purpose in eternity past. It includes the goal of bringing together into one all things in Christ. Look at how that works in our text in chapter 3. Specifically here, the mystery is the eternal purpose of God in which he predestined to save Jew and Gentile alike through the work of Jesus and uniting them together. Look at verse 2. If you have heard the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given, to, given me to you, word, right? It's given to me toward you or for you. How that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in a few words, right? Back in chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. He's written about this already. Whereby, when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that, here's the mystery, the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Right? That mystery which had not been fully revealed in the past has been made explicit in the present. It is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, right, placed in the same body, placed into the church as as partakers of the promise of the Messiah. Now, what you should not hear as Paul uses this word and calls it a mystery, what you should not think is that God had been completely silent about this until he showed it to the Apostle Paul. That's not the case. Right? We understand that God told Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that through them all the nations would be blessed. He, he taught the people of Israel to sing in their psalms, right? Praise the Lord, all you nations, praise him, all you people. He'd given the promise of the Messiah to the prophets and made explicit promises to all nations in the process. Right, Isaiah 49, verse 6, for example. Indeed, he says, It's too small a thing that you, the Messiah, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. 
I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So to be clear, this this mystery of God's plan for Jew and Gentile to be united in one was not a, a secret that had been utterly shrouded and hidden, but it was the plan of God that was in his heart and mind, Paul says, even before creation. Yet it has been unveiled slowly through the wisdom and grace of God until Paul could now write, look, this has been fully revealed, right? That's what he means by mystery. It's not a mystery anymore. We know now because God has fully revealed it. The full revelation of this mystery has happened in two ways. First off, everything that we just talked about from the Old Testament had already been revealed, but it had been revealed only to the Jews. It is their scripture, right? But now those eternal purposes of God have been revealed to a much wider audience. Look at what Paul says in verse 9. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. So the first way the mystery has been opened and exposed is by widening the audience of God's revelation from the Jews only in the Old Testament now to to all men. The second way the mystery has been exposed is through new and direct revelation. Paul describes this in verses 3 through 5. In verse 3, he says, By revelation he's made known unto me the mystery. In verse 4, that you might understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. In verse 5, what wasn't known is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul expressly denies that his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles has come because he's so smart and he has looked back in the Old Testament scriptures with his, his own personal secret decoder ring and like reinterpreted the hidden message of the Old Testament. He's like, that's not how it happens. Instead, the God who spoke in the Old Testament is not a silent God. He still speaks, Paul says. He, he still reveals his plan by his spirit through the inspiration of his prophets and the holy apostles. Now you can hear that message and you can approach it in one of two ways. You can say, well, that's great. Paul got direct revelation. Paul was inspired, but I'm not. So this has very little of anything to do with me. Or you can recognize that the apostle Paul was inspired and this morning you possess that spirit-inspired message which reveals the mystery and you have it in your hands this morning. And so you are just as bound by it as the church at Ephesus was when they first received this letter. It is through this spirit-inspired book filled with the words of the, the prophets and the apostles that we know the mystery. We can know it was the purpose of God before the world was created. We can see how it was foreshadowed at times in the Old Testament through God's revelation. We can, in in hindsight, recognize the unfolding plan of God to save all kinds of people through the work of his Son. 
We can read how that Jesus died and, and rose again, commanding his apostles to then, look, you go to all the world and preach this gospel, preach the good news to every creature. We can embrace the mystery, fully embrace it, that Christ Jesus came to make us heirs of God's family, partakers of his promises, members of his body, the church. This is the mystery that's been revealed. But Paul moves on in verses 7 through 12 from the message of the mystery to a message of the ministry. Look at verse 7. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be made known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. Now, Paul intermingles the message of the the mystery and the ministry because those two messages are inseparable in his life. In fact, anyone who calls themselves a minister ought to embrace that the work of the ministry is the work of making the mystery known to people. Look how Paul says it in verse 4. His goal in writing is that when, when you read, you might understand my knowledge of the mystery of Christ. It's not Paul's goal to say, I know something you don't know. <laughs> it's his goal to say, it's my work to make you know what's been revealed to me. In verse 9, he says that he was made a minister. In verse 7 to verse 9, make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. The work of the ministry is to make known the mystery that God is determined to save all kinds of sinners through the glorious work of his son Jesus. And yet in verses 7 through 12, as Paul sort of focuses in on the ministry, I want us to see five essential truths about the gospel ministry. First off, he says ministers are made, not self-fashioned. He says in verse 7, I was made a minister. Paul was made to be a minister. This word minister is the Greek word diakonos, and it simply means servant, or sometimes it's used as slave. Often Paul refers to himself as a minister, as a servant, or even a slave of the gospel. So it's fitting that Paul says, I was made to be a servant, because that's how servants come to be. Servants aren't volunteers. Slaves don't sign up for service. Ministers are drafted into the cause. You really can't picture the young Paul, right, Saul of Tarsus, 
sitting at the feet of Gamaliel and waiting for the day that he would become a preacher of the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? That was not his life's ambition. In fact, we know his life's ambition. He was rising quickly in the ranks of the Pharisees so that he would be a leader in Judaism. He describes in Galatians 1.14 how he was advancing through the ranks of the Pharisees more quickly than his peers, and he had advanced quickly enough that the religious leaders, when they stoned Stephen, looked around for an assistant and they picked Paul. And he continued this rise in Judaism. And soon, he wasn't just holding the coats anymore. He was being sent on trips with the authority to jail and murder Christians. He went from being the young man with a coat in his hand to a man with blood on his hands. Saul later described his attitude of those days. And this is what he said. He says, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He later admitted, I I persecuted the way, right? Christianity unto death, binding and delivering them to prisons, both men and women. And when they were put to death, I gave my vote against them. Saul became sort of the focal point of this violent religious campaign to exterminate the Christian faith. So it is strange to think that one day on the road to Damascus, the young Pharisee decided to volunteer for the gospel ministry. Here's how he volunteered. Traveling through the desert at noon, Saul suddenly saw a light that was brighter than the sun that was beating down on him. And the voice of Jesus Christ knocking him to his feet on the ground. And here's what Jesus said in Acts 26, 16. Rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared unto you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of the things which you've seen and those things which I will appear to you. Paul didn't volunteer for the gospel ministry. He was drafted. Now, I'm not at all suggesting that Paul was dragged, kicking and screaming against his will into obedience. He was made willing. Yet he was quite literally blinded to everything else in the world and made willing by the glorious and terrifying display of the reality of who Christ is. God is sovereign in calling men to salvation and the same God is sovereign in calling men to service. The church does not need ministers who were called by their mama and sent by their daddy. It needs men who, through the work of the Holy Spirit of God, were made to be ministers, not through their own self-determination, but through, the end of verse 7, the effective working of God's power. Second, ministers experience what they proclaim. Verse 8, unto me who am less than the least of all saints... Is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ? Those who proclaim the gospel have to be partakers of the gospel. Those who call others to the grace of God must have themselves experienced and been recipients of the grace of God because God's grace is humbling and it's also energizing. 
You can see the humbling nature of grace in verse 8. Paul calls himself, I am less than the least of all saints. Look, he is not demonstrating false humility there. He tells the story of his own life in 1 Corinthians 15 by saying, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. How could any minister who has experienced the grace of God ever look down on another and say, you're below me, I'm better than you? After the Apostle Paul, who crossed the world, started numerous churches, witnessed the salvation of countless people through his preaching, recorded vast amounts of the New Testament through spirit inspiration to him, that man looks at himself and can sincerely say, meh, I'd honestly rank myself at the bottom. It's only God's grace that has made me a minister. It's only God's grace that has made me what I am. And yet it is exactly that same grace which the minister embraces in humility, because grace is humbling, which also energizes the work of the ministry because grace is energizing. Grace humbles and grace empowers. So Paul says in verse 8, grace was given to me that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. You see this? I received grace so that I could proclaim grace. I embraced the gospel so I could preach the gospel. An essential truth of the gospel ministry is that ministers experience what it is they proclaim. Third, ministers deal in eternal realities. There are times where every preacher, if they don't get the question asked directly, and that happens, at least the look on people's face is, why are you so serious? Can you lighten up a little bit? Listen, there is a place for that. There's a place for, for humor, a place for real joyful expression in the pulpit, but the church doesn't need a 40-minute stand-up comedy routine. It is essential that the truth of the gospel ministry is declared because ministers deal with eternal realities. These realities stretch from eternity past to eternity future. In verse 9, Paul describes it as his job to make all men see the mystery of the gospel, which from before the beginning or from the beginning of the world was hid in God. God purposed an eternity past to save sinners and place them in his church through the proclamation of the gospel. And he has purposed to bless eternally those that he saves through, verse 11, the eternal purpose which he has purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. That heavy responsibility is something that weighed on the Apostle Paul. To just sort of bring that home this morning, you are going to spend eternity somewhere. You're either going to experience everlasting life but in the, in the blessed presence of the Lord Jesus, 
or you're going to experience everlasting death and the torments of hell's flames, wishing that you could die. Knowing that, how am I supposed to react? What am I doing up here? As a minister of the gospel, I am here to place those two realities before you. To warn you about the anguish and torment of everlasting destruction. To call you to turn from your sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. Why are you so serious, preacher? Really? Any minister who truly believes the message of the New Testament, it sort of precludes a bunch of foolishness and nonsense, doesn't it? Fourth, ministers maintain a high view of the church. Okay. We're going to talk about verse 10. And you better put your seatbelt on because it's not easy. It is far beyond what we usually think of as the function of the Lord's church. But here we go. Paul says in verse 9 that he's called to make all men see, make all men understand their fellowship. That word literally means participation in the mystery God has been revealing. And we've talked about what that mystery is, right? That it is all those united to reconciled to God have been reconciled to one another and placed in an assembly. Now here's what he says in verse 10. To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. This, in this very church-centric letter, right, Paul says the church is to bring glory to God in Christ Jesus at verse 21, at the end of this chapter. He says that Christ in chapter 5, verse 25, loved the church and gave himself for it. And here in our text, he says one of the purposes of the church is to declare God's wisdom, quote, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. That is to make known God's wisdom to angelic beings who watch in fascination as the assembly, the body of Christ, brings God glory. Now, if you're doing what my mind does, you're going, wait, what? Angels are watching? (laughs) Yes, that's what Paul says. It shouldn't surprise us. In 1 Corinthians 11, as he has that passage discussing the uh, woman's hair and her submission to her husband, whatever you think of that passage, he says they ought to embrace his teaching, quote, because of the angels. Peter describes in in 1 Peter 1.12 that the declaration of the gospel message as it's preached to lost sinners is something which, quote, angels desire to look at. Jesus said in Luke 15.10 that there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner that repents. There is a greater audience for God's glory than just the opinion of you and me. For most of us, this is a stunning reality that the church serves as an instrument to glorify God 
in the eyes of the angels. But let this also be a warning to those who want to elevate the church as if the church is the be-all, end-all of creation, as if the church itself is the end goal. The church is not the end. The Lord's church is the means to an end. The end is the glory of God in the eyes of all creation. Even those supernatural parts of creation that we can't see with our eyes. Paul says they witness the, in verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God through the church. This word manifold has nothing to do with a car's exhaust. It's a word that means variegated or multifaceted or many-sided. I think of this in context. When the angels see the Lord's church, ideally what they see, as Paul's describing it in this letter, is this multi cultural, multilingual, multi-ethnic, right? This, this diverse, many-sided, many-faceted assembly. This fellowship that Paul's been describing in this letter. Jews, Gentiles, male, female, Greeks, barbarians, slaves, free. And they see through the church, Paul says, the multifaceted nature of God's wisdom displayed. And when they see it, they glorify him for it. Knowing this, ministers are called both to work in the church and for the church because they maintain a high view of the church's call to display God's glory. What we do as a church, everything we do as a church is to bring God glory, not just what would glorify God in our minds, Right? Oh, I like to think about God this way. This satisfies me. This glorifies God in my mind. But what truly brings him glory, even in the eyes of the holy angels who watch what we do, we need to be serious about that calling. Fifth, ministers call sinners to Christ. Verses 11 and 12, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. A sinner experiences the grace of God when they come to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Only Jesus provides access to the Father. Jesus himself said, no man can come to the Father but by me. Paul said earlier in this letter that the good news of Jesus back in chapter 2 verses 17 and 18 was preached to you who were far off and to those that were near for through him both have access by one spirit unto the Father. The idea both in Ephesians 2 and in Ephesians 3 is that we come near to God the Father by embracing God the Son in faith. How do you expect to stand before God? Maybe I should start with this. Do you expect to stand before God? Because you will one day. You will someday, as you face eternity, be called to stand before Him and despite what some people think, You're not going to do it in in arrogance and defiance and self-confidence. 
Only through faith in Jesus Christ can anyone stand before God. And Paul says they not only stand, but they have boldness and access with confidence through Jesus Christ who cleanses us of our sin. We can approach God the Father boldly. Ministers, servants of the Lord Jesus, call others to him to be reconciled to the Father through faith in the Son. Because of the eternal consequences involved, you understand why Paul writes what he does in verse 1 and verse 13 right before and after this, right? What, what does imprisonment matter? What is it, enduring tribulations that is inconsequential? The mystery and the ministry make such experiences pale in comparison. Paul doesn't say, well, experiencing these hardships, well, that's good for me. What he actually says in verse 13 is, it's good for you. He began in verse 1 by calling himself the prisoner of Jesus for their sakes, right? The, the Lord and his sovereign power is the only one who had the keys to Paul's shackles. And Paul was willing to endure them if by enduring them he gets to declare the mystery and do the work of the ministry. He's glad for it. He's happy for it. He says, it's good for you. Next time, beginning in verse 14, Paul will have finished this kind of parenthetical thought and, and get back to his, for this cause, right? This is, because of that, here's what I do. Showing an example of what boldness and, and access with confidence to God looks like because he's going to pray for the assembly at Ephesus that they would have the same high view of their church, that they would have the same desire to see God's glory and that they would be empowered by God to do both of those things.